Well, good morning. This morning, we will continue our study of the book of Acts. We'll read Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 27. I've titled this uh, teaching, Paul's Apologetic to Roman Authorities, Part 1. I've titled it that way because chapters 25 and 26, Paul will still be before Roman authorities. In chapter 27, he will be on his way to Rome. In chapter 28, will be Paul in Rome. And that's how the book will conclude. It's interesting that the book is divided up into basically three parts. The first uh, seven chapters are the ecclesia, the birth of the ecclesia in Jerusalem and the early days of that one ecclesia. Then from chapter 7 to uh, roughly chapter 20, this is now the expansion of the message of the kingdom of God. And it went. It goes Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, as Acts one eight says it will go. And then finally, here you have at the uh, the end of the book, Paul in Rome, or excuse me, Paul in Jerusalem first, spending a couple of years in Caesarea and then in Rome. And all of that time, largely, he's incarcerated and offering defenses for his life against Jewish criticism, Jewish opposition, who's trying to stop him in any way they can. So this is uh, Paul now before Felix uh, in Caesarea. He's uh, he's arrived. Uh, you remember he was delivered out of the, the clutches of a, a plot to kill his life by the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And Paul's nephew found out about it and went to Paul. Paul had the nephew go to the tribune, who was the leader, the military leader. The tribune believed the young lad. We don't know how how old Paul's nephew was. He was apparently, you know, maybe 10, 11, 12, 13, something like that. Uh, But he believed him, and he got Paul out of there. Literally, they did a forced march at night to to leave uh, Jerusalem and go to, uh, to Caesarea. So we pick it up there. In uh, chapter 24, verse 1, five days after Ananias, the high priest, came down and some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, these men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, now the governor is Felix, so he... This is now what the what was argued by Tertullus, who was apparently a very seasoned, capable lawyer at the time. He starts out with compliments, of course. Uh, he says, we enjoy great peace because of you, Felix. The re- reforms are taking place in the, at the, in the, uh, for the benefit of the nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. You can tell a lot of... Uh, a lot of pandering up to him, but so that I, I will not burden you any further, Tertullus writes, I request that you will be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. So all of that was just opening comments to try to butter up Felix. And then verse five, he says, for we have found this man, referring to Paul, to be a plague an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, the sect of the Nazarenes is a reference to the followers of Christ. Other places, it's called the way. Uh, I believe this may be the only place where you actually have 
the phrase sect of the Nazarenes used in reference to the followers of Christ. Of course, Christ was a, was a Nazarite. This is not referring to the Nazarite vow that you have in the Old Testament. This referred to the city of Nazareth. And so when Jesus came to Jerusalem at his final time and was arrested, tried, and, and crucified, he brought people with him from Nazareth. So they, was, that was known. And, of course, Nazareth was in Galilee, and the Galileans were not regarded as intelligent people. They were regarded as uneducated people, so they were not held in high regard. So to be called a Nazarite was not a compliment. It was a pejorative term. So now he's <clears throat> this is a place where they actually use sect of the Nazarenes to try to uh, disparage Jesus and his followers. Verse 6. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we apprehended him. And, of course, you may remember that incident where Paul is in the temple obeying the recommendation of the ecclesia of Jerusalem. The leaders are Jewish, and they said, nobody thinks you're really committed to the Old Testament. So you need to do something to show you are. So they said, we have these people that are going through this purification. You need to go participate with them to show you agree with this and pay their expenses. So you're really committed to the Old Testament law when you start putting money into the till. So that's what he had done. That effort to try to placate the Jews backfired. It didn't work. And Jews just rioted against him, and they accused him of bringing an Ephesian named Trophimus into the temple, although that didn't happen. What happened was they had seen Paul with Trophimus, and some of the the Jews from Ephesus, where Trophimus was from, recognized him as from Ephesus and knew he was not a Jew, and so they had made the accusation up. It was a false accusation, and they accused him of desecrating the temple. So you see him, he's, he's accused of being a plague, you know, being a disease, an agitator, a ringleader of a sect, which means something that's, that's not orthodox, not consistent with Judaism, and a desecrator of the Jewish temple. So then he concludes in verse 8, by examining him you yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. Then verse 9, apparently there were Jews there uh, listening to Tertullus, part of this hearing, and they were apparently allowed to say something. So the Jews also joined in the attack, uh, in the attack alleging that these things were true. In other words, they, they didn't physically attack. They joined with the verbal attack, the accusation saying what Tertullus is saying is true. So you even have testimony here. You've got witnesses. Now, we don't know if these witnesses all agreed or not. We just know that this was what was presented now to Felix against Paul. So then in verse 10, you have the governor, Felix, motioning to Paul to speak for himself. So Paul then enters into about 11-verse apologetic. This is his defense. Because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years. I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it is no more than 12 days since I went to worship in Jerusalem. Now, so we now know Paul has been in Caesarea five days. So that means he was in Jerusalem for less a week, no more than a week. 
maximum a week. So he's pointing that out. I wasn't there very long. And purpose for my visit was to worship. Now, the word worship there is proskinuo. And this is a future active participle. Now, you know, participles are verbs that end in ing in English. Okay, so this would be rendered in English properly worshiping. The translator rendered it as an infinitive, to worship as an infinitive. But it's really a participle. And it's future tense, meaning that his intent was to go and to worship there in Jerusalem. And the word proskinuo refers to an internal heart attitude of worship. Worship has two aspects, spirit and in truth. We know that from Jesus' uh, interaction with the Samaritan woman. God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. So spirit refers to the intangible internal aspect of worship in the heart. The Holy Spirit moving in our spirit, you know, to help us express faith and a desire to know the Lord and grow in the Lord. So that's the first element of worship is spirit. The second element is truth. And truth implies that you know the truth and you seek to live by the truth. So worship has two aspects, and you're going to see both aspects in this text. This first reference to worship is internal worship, the heart attitude being right. Then verse 12, it says, they didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd. In other words, Paul didn't go there stirring up trouble. He didn't go in there trying to argue with somebody, trying to find, fight a fight. He was there to truly you know, humble himself before the Lord as a servant of the Most High God. Now, he did either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. It's interesting that they had that he it seems that may have been synagogues in Jerusalem. The temple was the big one, but there were apparently synagogues there, or perhaps he was referring to synagogues other places. Not totally clear on that. So in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city, so neither can they prove the charges they now are making against me. In other words, he's saying you don't have evidence from what's been given that this is true. This is just an allegation that's being made. So he's, he's saying, no, what these people said is true is not true. But I admit this to you. Now, so Paul is going to confess. This is what is true. He said, I worship. Now he uses a different word for worship. He doesn't use the word that refers to the inner heart of worship. He uses the word that refers to the expression of worship. He uses the word laturo. Laturo is used, it's present tense, which means it's continuous action. It's active voice, which means Paul is doing the acting. It's indicative mood. Indicative mood means it's a fact. And it literally means to perform sacred services. So this was a an early, you know, this was a way to express your worship, your heart attitude through particular actions that you took. So this is what Paul said. This I was doing this. I was trying to do things that express my heart. And then he goes on and said, I worship the God of my ancestors. And that word ancestors is the word we get fathers from. So he is appealing back to the Jewish fathers, which in the Jewish time, fathers were big. Be it, you want to be connected to the fathers. Today, people don't care about it. 
people people are independent. They do what they want to do, and they don't they don't care about fathers. But this was not the case in the first century. They were very committed to following their fathers. So this he wants to worship in the tradition of the truth of the fathers, according to the way. Now, see, the way is the early way to refer to Christianity, early term used to refer to Christianity. And the word way refers to a lifestyle. Christianity was not just a profession of faith. It was a lifestyle. Jesus was Lord of everything. Moving on, it says that the Jewish people called the way a sect. In other words, they they recognized it was a lifestyle, and they did not agree with it. They didn't believe in it. They believed everything that, in accordance, they didn't recognize that the way is consistent with everything that is written in the Law and the Prophets. Even though the Jews believe in the Law and the Prophets, they didn't realize that the way does too. The way believes the same truth, at least the same source of truth, the Scripture. They all embrace the Old Testament Scripture, the Jews and the Christians, both. Christianity comes from Scripture, Old Testament Scripture. It's built on Old Testament Scripture. He goes on to say, I have a hope in God, which these men, that is the Jews themselves, also accept that there will be a resurrection both of the righteous and the unrighteous. That's an Old Testament doctrine, that all will be resurrected. Isaiah 28 is a great example of this, where the covenant of death is discussed and people who believe that they will die and then there's nothing, he says, that's the covenant of death and that will not stand. There will be a resurrection of all, both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. Everyone will give an account of themselves before the, for the Lord. This is a teaching of Scripture. Both the Jews and Christians believe this, particularly if you're a Jew, particularly if you're a Pharisee. Now, if you're a Sadducee, the Sadducees didn't believe it, but the Pharisees did. I always strive, Paul says, to have a clear conscience toward God and man. In other words, Paul is not trying to offend any man. He is trying to present the truth that he's been given. He's trying to present it accurately, faithfully, and kindly and graciously as he can. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts. These will be like uh, alms for the poor and offerings to my people. Now, Jerusalem became very poor after the ecclesia was formed. Now, one of the reasons this may have been the case may have been the persecution against them. That's possible. But it may have also been that a lot of the first converts to Christianity were part of the dispersion. And they happened to be in Pentecost on the day that that the ecclesia was birthed, and they never went home. And those are the ones that early on had to have support from the ecclesia because what you're, once you're in Jerusalem, you're away from your livelihood. You're away from your farms. You're away from your ability to support yourself. So they very likely could have been the poor that, that developed and maybe maybe coupled to that would begin to be persecution from the Jews as well. They may have been eliminated from the economy. It's hard to know exactly what, but there's several references in Scripture of, of collections being made for the saints in Jerusalem who were struggling. He goes on in verse 18, while I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple. In other words, he was in the temple. He was in the temple properly. He was following the law, and there was no crowd and no uproar. 
Verse 19, it is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges if they have anything to say against me, which they don't. Or let these men here, the ones that are here today, state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. And again, they've already made their charges. The charges, he's a plague, he's an agitator, a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes, a desecrator of the Jewish temple. Paul is clearly denying all of that. So what else do you have? Bring, bring some other charge against me. Those are all false. And he, he then concedes something. He said, there might be one thing they could charge me with. And perhaps he's confessing that maybe he was out of order here in one point. He said, you might remember in the last chapter, one of the things that he did to kind of stir things up with the Sanhedrin is he pointed out he was a Pharisee. And he pointed out that he was being tried because of his belief in the resurrection from the dead. And you might recall that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees do. So that created an internal conflict between the Pharisees and Sadducees that shut down their attempts to have a hearing with Paul. So Paul may now think, well, you know, I took advantage of a weakness that they had. I knew that that would create turmoil and that shut down their attempts to really interrogate me. Maybe he's saying, okay, maybe, maybe that was wrong. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. It's a real interesting thing because, uh, you know, he says there, he, he admits, he admits that this could be wrong. The word wrongdoing is literally the word adikia, which is the Greek word. Adikia means righteous, and you put an A in front of it, it means unrighteous. That's the word translated wrongdoing there. So it could be he's admitting, uh, I made a mistake here. I shouldn't have done that. So he's, he's giving them one thing. He's giving them this. Now, they don't take it, but he gives it to them anyway. All right, so how does Felix respond to Paul's apologetic? Well, P- Felix was well-informed about the way. So he adjourned the hearing, saying, here's what he said. When Lysias, the commander, comes down, Lysias is the commander in Jerusalem that had protected Paul and sent him to Caesarea to be heard uh, by the governor. When Lysias, the commander, comes down, and we have no record that that ever happened, He said, I will decide your case. So in other words, he said, I have no decision today. I'm going to wait for more testimony. Now, he ordered that the centurion, keeping Paul under guard, you know, though he should cease, so so, though he should have some freedoms. In other words, he continued to guard him. Maybe he continued to be where he was before, which was a part of the palace of, of uh, uh, of the king there. Uh, maybe he stayed there, maybe they moved him, we don't really know, but he had some freedom, and his friends were able to take care of him and meet his needs. Several days later, Felix caught with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish woman, uh, sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Jesus Christ. So Drusilla is in this too. Drusilla is probably in her early 20s. Felix and Drusilla are not on their first marriages. Felix, um, according to one one commentator I read, was actually a former slave who had been successful and moving up the ranks and becoming a governor in the Roman Empire. Uh, so he was an older gentleman. He had been married a couple of times before, and apparently Drusilla was a woman of um, beauty and a woman of, with a heritage that was valuable to him. She was part of the Herod line. You may have heard of King Herod. King Herod was the uh, the great, was the one that that was alive when uh, Jesus was born, and he was the one that murdered all the young children 
because he was angry that the king of the Jews had been born. He had been told that, and uh, he didn't know who this person was. And so he just decided to murder everyone, every young child two years and under around Bethlehem to try to get rid of this person. Well, he died, and then his uh, he had successors that ruled under him. And so this is now some... Um, probably 50 years after Herod the Great died, but his sons and his grandsons ruled, and Drusilla is related to this family. She's a daughter of one of these Herods. So that made her attractive to Felix. So Drusilla was married at the time. In fact, she was married as a young girl and uh, married twice, I believe. And so as now in her early 20s, she is made available to Felix, and he marries her. So... Uh, when Paul talks to them, he's going to address some things that probably were very relevant to them, and it's going to cause some fear on the part of Felix. So Paul, talking about the subject of faith in Christ, specifically talks about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Felix became afraid. Clearly, conviction was happening here. This was... Uh, this was not setting well. It doesn't say Drusilla was afraid. It simply says Felix was afraid. I'm always hesitant to argue from silence, so I don't want to draw any conclusions from that. But Felix, I think, felt very convicted. Uh, some theologians look at this unpacking of faith in Christ in this way as the three tenses of salvation. Righteousness is, of course, associated with justification. We have right standing with God when we are born again. Self-control is associated with sanctification. It's a growing, maturing process of self-control. And judgment refers to the future and when we will be fully glorified and we will be fully saved because we will be spared eternal judgment. So some people view that as the three senses of salvation as being unpacked by this. And whatever it was to Felix, it, it scared the willy out of him. He was afraid. He was probably convicted because he knew he was living in sin because divorce back then was sin. We don't view it that way today, but back then divorce was sin. And both Felix and Drusilla were divorced and yet they were remarried. So that means they were living in adultery. So there was probably a lot of conviction here. So the way you do with conviction is the way we like to do with conviction. We get rid of it. So we leave for now. Uh, basically what Felix says is leave for now. But I, when I have an opportunity, I will call for you. So Felix said, get, get rid of the conviction, get out of my presence, and I'll be okay. At the same time, Felix wanted to be bribed. So was bribery going to stop him from pressing in and uh, pressing into the Lord? Well, he apparently didn't let the conviction rule. He, he decided to go for the bribery. So apparently he kept calling for Paul. Paul never bribed him as far as we know, but he kept calling for him, hoping that that would happen. And so nothing happened. Uh, so he sent for him quite often and conversed to him and nothing happened. And this went on for two years, over two years. And then Felix is replaced by Festus. And because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, probably because of his wife, he left Paul in prison. So there's there you have Paul's apologetic to Felix and the circumstances around that. So let me just do a quick, uh, you know, theology lesson, and I want to do an application. I want to focus in on worship a bit, since uh, that's what is a big a big theme of this. 
Paul connected his worship as a Christian to his Jew- Jewish lineage. As revealed in the following comment in Acts 24, 14, it says, But I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors, my fathers, according to the way. The way believe that Jesus is Lord in Christ, which they call a sect, believing that even though the sect of Christianity or the way believes everything in accordance with the law and the prophets, just like the Jews do, the difference is we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the the Lord. He is the Christ. He is what everything in the Old Testament is pointing to, and the Jews are denying Jesus. So clearly Paul was committed to his Jewish heritage. He saw continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament, and the continuity or the connecting truth between the Old Testament and New Testament is the resurrected Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ, according to Acts 2.36. Because Paul was highly biblically literate, the transition from Judaism to Christianity was not difficult. He could readily understand how Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament typology and prophecies about the coming Messiah. And undoubtedly, Paul knew Jesus Jesus' most cogent statement on worship given in John 4, verses 19 through 26. In this text, Jesus stated in his conversation with a Samaritan woman that worship is to be done in spirit and in truth. This means worship is rooted in an internal spiritual reality that is tangibly expressed in external action. Paul's focus in Acts 24, 14 is on the external action. That is, of serving the will of God according to the ways of God. Paul's service to God was in accordance with the law, based on the understanding that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system. Therefore, there was no need for that to continue. But beyond the fulfillment of the ceremonial law, Paul found guidance in the Old Testament about how to live the lifestyle of a Christian. For Paul and the early Christians, Worship was not a ritualistic event, but a lifestyle. This is why Christianity was called the way. Because of Paul's training, his time of maturing in the message of Christ was probably shorter than most. There was probably uh, less than 10 years from the time of his conversion on the road to Damascus until he was called into his work as an apostle by his spiritual father, Barnabas. So Acts 9 records the road to Damascus encounter where Paul encountered Christ. And then Acts 11, 25, and 26 records Barnabas going to Antioch where Paul had been sent for his own protection to get him, to bring him to Antioch, and to engage him in the work that the Holy Spirit was doing in Antioch. That's when Paul really engaged as an apostle for the first time. Undoubtedly, this time, Paul, but during this time of where he was, you might call his um, quiet years, his solid years, that's what some theologians have called it. Uh, My spiritual father, Dr. Johnson, thinks it might have been about seven or eight years. It's hard to know. It's just trying to put things together. That's more of an inference. But it was some time. Uh, And Paul undoubtedly felt like maybe God had forgotten him or maybe he wasn't going to do anything more or maybe he he might have lost hope. We don't know. We don't have revelation on that, but it'd be easy to put yourself in Paul's shoes and think, well, I've been here a long time and nothing is happening. But all of a sudden the father shows up in form of Barnabas and saying, hey, Paul, come with me. We've got some work to do. And that's what fathers do. Fathers grab sons and they take them 
and they help them get to work, do the work that they're called to do. When you try to find the work that you're called to do without a father guiding and directing you, you're living like an orphan, and you will get the consequences of that. So the, the wise thing is get under a father and let him help you. Help you. All right, I want to just uh, give you a few thoughts of application here on holistic worship. I grew up in the Baptist tradition. I remember the sign in front of the church building listing the, the key events of the week, particularly the Sunday events. And the big event of the week was the 11 a.m. Sunday event that was called worship. Later, later in life, I noted that other churches had the same thing. As a young boy, I hadn't really noticed that, but I began to notice other churches had similar signs, and they had their 11 a.m. service on Sunday morning, and they were called it worship. Now, I know that today things have changed a bit. Uh, the times may be different, but they still call that Sunday morning gathering, whatever time it is, and however many they may be, they call them worship. That's what happens in the, both Bible churches, charismatic churches, denominational churches. It doesn't matter. The terminology seems to be the same. So early in my life, I kind of thought I had an understanding of worship. Uh, I thought it was an event, generally weekly, that included prayer, a couple of hymns, a sermon, and an altar call. Sometimes there were formal creeds or responsive readings, maybe even the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and sometimes baptisms. And sometimes there was a choir and possibly special music. So that was worship to me. It was very predictable. It took between one to two hours on Sunday mornings, and the order of service was generally the same every week. Slight variations, but generally the same. It was very much a ritual. When the event was over, worship was over. At least that's what I thought. Throughout my childhood, my early adult life, worship was a ritual event that happened at a specific place each time, each week. This led me to believe that God was impersonal. This meant that I didn't really know him, and he really didn't know me. I did not understand the personal relationship of, of God with his people until much later in life. Since I grew up under Bible teaching, I assumed that I was being taught the truth about worship and everything else and was slow in asking questions about what the Bible really said about worship. According to the Bible, the earliest expression of worship was given in the pre-fallen condition, what Abraham called the normal condition. Abraham Kuyper called it that. Worship was tilling the garden and fellowshipping with the personal God of creation each day. That was apparently what worship was intended to be. In other words, the first expression of worship was a lifestyle relating to God daily in the work, in the family, and everything of life. That was to be an act of worship. That's apparently the way it was intended. Now, Jesus explained worship to the Samaritan woman in John 4, verses 19 through 26, he said that the essence of worship was in spirit and in truth. A way to understand this is that worship is not a ritualistic event at a certain time and at a certain place, but it is a lifestyle to be manifested all the time in every situation and every place. Furthermore, God was personal, not impersonal. The heart of worship must be rooted in the Holy Spirit, the truth of Scripture, this is expressed by the lifestyle of obedience to the will of God, executed according to the ways of God and the timing of God and for the glory of God. In this sense, worship is a lifestyle of service to God everywhere and all the time. This is, includes family and work. 
The Apostle Paul reinforced the idea of worship as a form of worship in his epistle to the Colossians. Here he commanded the slaves who were the workers of the first century with these words. He said, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only when they're watching you as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly all the time. Fearing the Lord, which is an Old Testament phrase for worship. We should be worshiping the Lord 24 7, 365 days a year in everything. The concept of fearing the Lord is clearly a strong reference to the Old Testament root of worship, how this is to be done. So the Apostle Paul spoke to the civil leaders of his day claiming he worshiped based on the revelation of God in both the Old Testament and the New. Scripture suggests that worship worship is not intended to be ritualistic, although it came to be ritualistic under the law. That was not the way it was intended. But worship is to be a lifestyle of living everywhere all the time with one's heart knit to and in relationship with the personal God of creation. Based on this standing with God, a Christian lives holistically, surrendered to the will of God in everything. This is a really high bar and largely unknown today because today we're too busy trying to live the American dream, trying to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and we want God to bless us. This is not worship. And we have made the mistake of connecting music to worship as if that's, that's it. We worship when we sing expressively. Well, if you're living a lifestyle of worship, you will. You will worship when you sing. If you're not living a lifestyle of worship, are you really worshiping just because you sing? I think that's very problematic. And I think it's largely a point of deception today among many who profess to be Christians. We've got to give back to a biblical understanding of worship. This is very different, very different from how it's commonly understood today. It goes back to the roots of Scripture, what Scripture says, how God made his universe to be, and what worship is to look like in the garden. So as we go back and try to learn from that, we will learn that Christianity is to be a lifestyle lived holistically under the Lordship of Christ. That's the only way to be a Christian. Anything else is is a lie. It's deception. And living that way is extremely difficult, and no one does it perfectly. So it's not a but it is about clarity about what truth is. So may we have the grace to live truthfully and be true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth everywhere, in every circumstance, all the time. So may we have grace to do that well in Jesus' name. Amen.